Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests we've spoken to on JM and the AM. Sherry Mandel is out with a brand new book. The interview was fascinating. Here she is, my guest on JM and the AM, now on JM Rewind on the Nachum Siegel Network. Sherry Mandel is with us live via telephone. It is always an honor to welcome her to JM and the AM. She is author of a brand new book, Reaching for Comfort. What I saw, what I learned, and how I blew it, training as a pastoral counselor. In 2009, Sherry Mandel won the National Jewish Book Award for the Blessing of a Broken Heart, which told of her grief an initial morning after her 13-year-old son, Kobe, was brutally murdered. Years later, with her pain still undiminished, Sherry trained to help others as a pastoral counselor, um, one of the first in Israel's hospitals. Her latest book offers 22 vignettes describing her interaction with terminal patients and their families in two Jerusalem hospitals with a stirring mix of curiosity, candor, compassion, and humor that throws fresh and unexpected light on one of the most ubiquitous literary genres, the terminal ward. By the way, folks, I read it. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, Before we introduce Sherry, I remind everybody that Kobe's yard site was yesterday. Many of us who remember that era remember that it was Lagba Omer related, uh, right around Lagba Omer, and sure enough, the uh, yard site was yesterday. And to Sherry writes, on May 8th of 2001, 20 years ago, my 13-year-old son Kobe cut school and went hiking with his friend Yosef Ishran in a canyon near our home in Israel. Terrorists trapped the two eighth-grade boys in a cave and beat them to death with rocks. The murderers smeared the boy's blood on the walls of the cave. This was, for those of you who don't remember, one of the terror attacks in Israel that in so many ways affected and uh, really uh, agonized the collective Jewish heart around the world. And I'm sure that's something that Sherry can confirm because she remembers the reaction from the world uh, to the brutal death of her son. Sherry Mandel, author of Reaching for Comfort, an honor to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's great to speak to you again. I appreciate that. Um, so much has changed over the last 20 years. The first time you were in my studio, which was about the first book, and recounting the tale of um, uh, the murder of, of Kobe, uh, at that point I've never, I had never observed the yard site, and now each year I observe three for my parents and brother, and yesterday was the yard site of your son, Kobe. And and for me, yard site is always a very unusual day. Do you feel the same way? You know, I always look for signs, and I kind of gave up looking for signs. And then yesterday I went swimming. I went to the pool, and this is a crazy story. <laughs> I came out, and I couldn't find my clothes. And I was going... From the pool to the cemetery, and it turned out that somebody had moved my clothes. You know, it's Israeli; it's like chutzpah. They they <laughs> thought that they they wanted more room. That's what somebody told me. She heard that the cleaner told her somebody wanted more room, so they moved my clothes. And I was really like pissed off because I'm like, what kind of chutzpah? And then I realized it was like a Kobe moment because he loved to like be mischievous. And it was like really, like flipped the whole, mo- you know, that whole moment. So I feel like that today I was thinking that was my Kobe moment. As, for the as strange as it sounds, I know exactly what you're talking about. Lots of weird things seems to ha- seem to happen on, on days of a yard site. What, what was it like going to the cemetery after that? Um, well, you know, I went with my kids and my grandchildren, so... It's always horrible, but I, I think I have um, anticipatory grief toward the yard site because once Yom Hazikaron starts, right. which is like a week and a half before the yard site, I kind of fall apart emotionally. And so when it, when it finally became the day of the yard site, it's almost like a relief. So also my, my children spoke, and they spoke what, about what it was like for them, and my daughter-in-law also spoke. So it was really beautiful that they are kind of taking ownership of this tragedy. And I didn't really have to speak except to thank people. 
Is it hard to think where he would be up to in life at this point? Is that is that something you try to avoid, or you think about it all the time? No, I, I you know I always thought he would be a lawyer or a judge because you know he was the oldest and he always argued for everybody. And sometimes I would say to him, you know, Kobe, when you're older and you're a judge or a lawyer, you can you can make that claim to the judge, but here it's not going to fly. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I, I try not to think about it, really. You know, um, close to 20 years ago, I mean, the book came out, obviously, a couple of years after he was murdered, uh, your first book. Uh, there, there are things I still remember that from that conversation. I did not go back to the archives to, to listen to it. Uh, there are things I actually remember from that conversation that really made a profound impact on me, and I'm sure the audience. And one of the things was moving on, how minutes or hours after this tragedy, there are things that happen. In that case, you were telling us about, you know, other children being hungry on the way to the, to, to the, to the cemetery to actually bury him. Uh, you know, you get thrown into the, you know, the, the regular routine of life. There is a necessity, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm citing a drastic example, uh, but days, weeks, months, years later, you know, there's always this important concept of, of trying to move on. And, uh, and that made a profound impact on me just realizing how one how one has to rebound from a tragedy even though it's always with you, even though the pain never seems uh, to go away. Maybe it's a little more dull, but it doesn't seem to go away. I have to assume that that attitude and your whole philosophy uh, is very helpful when trying to counsel people who are going through the situations that you describe in your book, people who are relatives of or they themselves are terminally ill patients yeah well first of all i think you don't move on i think that's kind of a misnomer for for tragedy that you move with like you you do continue but you bring that person with you um i think as a pastoral counselor or even somebody who visits the sick that it's what what I learned was just to be quiet and to be present and also not to be afraid of silence, which we're all really afraid of. Mm-hmm. And to just let that space open up and also to let what's going to happen in the room, you know, occur so that it's not scripted. You know, that's kind of why I didn't really write this in the book, but I, I would pray before I went into the room right. to let what, what, to let what's right to happen or what needs to happen happen. You know, I remember you telling us, uh, and I and I've used this this uh, both as someone who has you know during shiva and paying shiva calls that the most important thing is that you're there. The most important thing is that people realize you've made the effort and you were there. You know, in their time of need, the conversation is not nearly as important. Yeah, no, because words become very cheap during a shiva. You know, like, it's just, like, sometimes I go to a shiva and it pains me because people are just talking about ordinary things. Or, you know, it's okay to talk about the person who died or to bring Torah, but I I think it's like, you know, it's a holy week. So it's really important to to respect the holiness of, of death and of life, mostly of life. Sherry Mandel's with us. Book is called Reaching for Comfort. I'm highly recommending it. Um, would you be in this line of work or line of volunteerism if not for the tragedy? Did you did you have trouble convincing yourself, somebody who has been through what you've been through, that maybe it would not be the best thing for you to be hanging out in a terminal hospital environment? Um, well, my mother tried to talk me out of it, <laughs> but well, not not everybody was terminal. But, you know, my second hospital I worked with, they were in vegetative state. Right. So it was mostly with the families. And and that was a really, really difficult experience. But I, I think, you know, going to the hospital and learning pastoral counseling, I think I needed to be with people whose lives were disrupted because I felt mm. I was always looking for some wisdom on suffering that they could offer me. You know, I felt like there was some truth there that I needed to observe. Interesting. I um, 
when when you put yourself in this type of situation, you meet people of all backgrounds, people of all faiths, those of us who uh, who who think that you know in Israel you walk into a hospital and only meet Jews or Israelis that would not be accurate and you meet people in you know in in many different types of situations uh the first thing i have to ask you is knowing who's responsible or the background of who's responsible for your son's murder and now you're in a position where you've made a commitment to offer comfort and counseling to people of all faiths does that sometimes become difficult when you realize that some of those people are from the same background as the killers? Yeah, that was an issue for me. And in fact, my teachers told me that, you know, I didn't have to work with um, Palestinian, with Arab patients. And at first I didn't, but then I started working with them. And actually in the hospital, in um, the second hospital, I worked in the children's ward where the children were in vegetative state. And I worked with an Arab woman, a young Arab woman, Mm -hmm. the mother. And we didn't have a common language because she didn't speak Hebrew and um, I didn't speak Arabic and she didn't speak English. And we just bonded somehow and we would just hug and cry. And for me, it was a really important healing because I felt like, you know, I, I blame the killers, but I don't blame an entire population of Arabs. Understood. Sherry Mandel's with us. The book is Reaching for Comfort. Um, isn't it amazing? And, and again, uh, <laughs> for a lot of people, they would think they could do this naturally, or they think they have common sense, and therefore they could walk into a hospital room and, 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 and act properly. Um, when it comes to trying to offer comfort to people in these situations. But I I would bet that when you went for professional training, the course of study probably was amazing. You know, many things that you were taught that you never considered or strategies that you, you know, had had never even thought about. Uh, My my point being that, you know, there's nothing like formal training. And even in this, where, where people think that, that good common sense and good, you know, desire to be there for somebody else is enough. Uh, the actual course of study is very rewarding. Well, it was mostly learning about ourselves because we all have like programmed responses or things that somebody says to us that will hurt us and that they lie sort of below consciousness. And the, the course was really about making ourselves aware of our inner dialogue so that we could kind of empty ourselves in a way to be there for the other person. Because a lot of people, when they visit, they want to give advice, they want to cheer you up. And that's not always what's, what's the most important thing. You know, lots of times it's just listening to somebody else's pain. Right. Most of us want to hear somebody else's pain, but when you give people that platform, it, when, you, when you accept them, when you accept their pain, then sometimes they can heal or they can heal emotionally because they they feel recognized. More than once in the book, you start a vignette uh, by by saying you were hesitant to walk into a room or you started to walk into a room and you just got the feeling that because something like a test or a procedure was going on, maybe you should leave. And then the relatives or the person themselves tell you, no, no, please come in. Why do you think they're inviting you in? Why, why do you think a total stranger is important for them to walk in at that point? Um, I think because people, they feel things. You know, it's like we were like not, it's like visual clues more than what somebody says. And I, I think maybe they felt that I was somebody they could trust. Also, because in my Hebrew, is, which is not great, I couldn't talk that much. So, like, I could be there. It was much easier for me to listen. You know, and I, I had, I was like a different person in Hebrew then. So I felt maybe they just needed that different point of view or somebody to contain what was going on in that room. Because every room has a drama. You know, sometimes yep. it's just to witness that drama yep. and to be, to be able to receive it in a way. Um, sometimes you'll walk into a room and I thought, I I think this strategy is just brilliant and and it's something I have to remember, frankly, 
and I think anybody who takes visiting the six seriously should remember. Uh, it, it sounds like you purposely tried to guide conversation when there was conversation, not to tell me, meaning you in this case, not to tell me about the person lying in that bed. Tell me about the person before they were lying in that bed. You know what I mean? Tell me about their life, your your memories, what you remember most about them, holiday time, other time. And, and it seems like that could be so comforting to those who are sitting there 24 hours a day with their relative. Yeah, because you're making the person live again. And also, when you, you know, like when I would walk into that room, I would just be somebody who was frail most of the time and weak. And when you give the family a chance or even the person a chance to talk about who they are, you know, they're, they're still that person, even if their body has changed right. inside there. And they still have a strong neshama and they still have strong memories. So it, it's, vi- it's vitality. It's vital. Is that a word? Vitalizing? Yeah, I th- I, I, or, or, or revitalizing, maybe. I, I, I think you have a, I, I think you have a, you have a, you have a story in there with it where a patient actually identified with the disease, right? Like they were the disease. You, 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 I don't know. Oh you... yeah, yeah. He didn't want to talk to me because he had he had a disease and he he couldn't eat what he wanted to eat, and he he basically said to me, "I I am Crohn's disease." Right. You know, I have Crohn's disease. But it also depends when you meet the person. It's like, I'm sure if I had met him further along in his process, he might have had a different viewpoint. You'd think you'd be in this line of work if uh, if not for your experience 20 years ago? Uh, well, you know, when I was young, I volunteered in the hospital and as a candy striper. So I hmm. think I always had a feeling for other people's pain. But I don't think I would have been in the hospital without going through what I went through with Kobe. First of all, I mean, without my son's murder. First of all, I wouldn't have had the courage to do it in Hebrew. Mm. Um, and after Kobe's murder, I just did a lot of things because I thought, you know, I can do this. I've, I've done, I've, I went through something so hard. This, this just can't be so hard. And also, I felt like I had something to give because I had an understanding of what it was like to suffer. Did you feel, like I said earlier, that the collective Jewish heart around the world was in pain after the uh, news of Kobe's uh, murder? Yes, I felt that very strongly because people were in touch with us and people wanted to help us with the foundation. And they, they I, I felt that people just were torn apart by Kobe's murder all over the world. Yeah, no question about it. What, what's the status of the Kobe Mandel Foundation, especially now with the the pandemic? Has that curtailed activities? Yes, of course. It, yeah, I mean, we've had so many staggers in Israel. Thank God now we're opening up. Right. And please God, we'll have a camp this summer. But we continue. And last summer we had camp in a car that went around to kids. <laughs> and we have a lot of we have lots of groups on Zoom. And we're still continuing. So anybody who wants to contribute can go online at kobemandel.org and contribute. That would be great. We also mentioned, of course, that um, he was with Yosef Ishran when he was murdered. They were both murdered by terrorists. Not suggesting that it's a requirement. I'm just curious if you, if your families are in touch. Oh, yeah. We go. I mean, I just, Rena came to the York site and we, we went to theirs and we we spend time together. Yeah, we're very close. Even though we're totally like different, we have such different backgrounds. But there's, of course, we're so connected from this murder. It's but it's like we're in laws somehow, you know, like married in death. Yeah, kind of morbid. That's um, that's an understatement. Um, and twenty years later, you're st- even even I would say in the generations after mine, you're still known as Kobe's yeah. mom, right? Well, actually, 20 years is a long time, so I I think people are starting to forget. Or they were born, you know, they weren't born or they were just too young. So a lot of people now don't know the story of Kobe, even in Tekoa, where I live, because we were a very small community, and now we're a large community, and most of the newcomers are in their 30s. So they don't necessarily know Kobe's story. So actually, we're doing a memorial event where we're going to go for a hike in the wadi 
um, a week from Friday. Wow. Because I just think it's it's important for Tacoa people to know what happened here and to know the history. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, certain areas of Israel, if not all areas of Israel, were built on Jewish blood. And uh, and it's an important reminder, actually, for everybody, not just Tacoa residents, but everybody, about the sacrifice that so many families have made in order for there to be a Jewish presence uh, both in your area and so many other areas of Israel. Um, and, and I wonder if that is at all comforting. You write in the book about, um, you have something in one of the stories, and I apologize, I <laughs> read this a few days ago. You have something about uh, you know the, the question of wasted life. I, I believe the young man was in a car accident or some type of accident, and you know that hovers over you. I mean, knowing that your son was killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem, does that at all um, make it more meaningful and less wasteful? Well, I think it makes it more meaningful, for sure. And also, the the thing that that woman said to me, her son died for nothing. Right. And to me, that is such a painful statement. He died for nothing. Right. And I feel like everything that Seth and I, that my husband and I did, was to make sure that Kobe's death wasn't for nothing. Right. So, yes, it's Peter Shachem, but it, it also... I, you know, when I speak, I always say, Kobe, you know, he came to Israel, and he loved being Jewish, and he loved Israel. And when people ask what you what they can do, I always say, you know, put Judaism and Israel in the center of your life. Right. And then, you know, then Kobe didn't die for nothing. He, he died for something. And he died believing in, in Israel and proud of living here. And, and loving it. Look what he was doing on the last day of his life. He was loving the land. Yeah, the you know we did a song. It's on YouTube um, for Kobe on Yom Hazikaron, and it's filmed in the Wadi in the canyon. And that canyon is one of the most beautiful places in Israel. And when we go down, I mean we don't go down that much because it's too painful. Yeah. But when we go, do go down to that cave, it's very ironic or paradoxical because there's such beauty there. And then, you know, there's such pain in that cave. I can only imagine. And he'd rather be <laughs> he'd he'd rather be hiking the land than be in school. <laughs> yeah. Because of, yeah. because of his love for Eretz Israel even in the uh at that age. Sherry Mandel, yeah. by, by, um, by the way, I have to, I mean, it's a short book, you know, I, and I say that only because sometimes that encourages people even more to pick it up. Uh, but the, the yeah. stories are remarkable. I mean, you have so many incredible experiences. And again, through your eyes and through your experience, it, it just becomes so much more meaningful. And I, uh, you know, the power of listening, you, you, you're so good at transmitting to us through this book what the power of listening is all about. So many of us don't listen. And it's just so vital, especially in those situations, to listen and to let people express themselves and to drift from sadness to joy in a five-minute conversation. You've seen that. You write about it, how people are all depressed and you know, focused in the now, and then they you know, go back and talk a little bit about you know, the person and who they were and what Purim was like with them and what you know, holidays were like with them. And, and all of a sudden, five minutes later, it's a completely different attitude. Must be an amazing feeling having right. having that ability to do that and understanding how important the uh, the ability to listen is all about. So uh, all I could say is, like I said earlier, Sherry, I'm highly recommending the book. It's a it's somewhat of a life changer, like your first book was, and um, and I hope everyone gets it. Uh, it's called Reaching for Comfort, everybody. Reaching for Comfort. What I saw, what I learned, and how I blew it. And uh, by the way, I'm not so sure I'd agree with everything in the blew it category. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that's what my sister said too. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, there are some you know funny twists and turns that that might suggest you know that that you could have said or done things a little differently. But I don't know if I'd totally agree with that. But anyway, it's certainly it's certainly an eye catching line. How I blew it, uh, training as a pastoral counselor, Sherry. Where do people get the book? On Amazon. Or a book depository here in Israel. Simple and as that. I just have to say, yeah, actually one other thing, because sure. Becky Aaron Price, she did an audible version of The Blessing of a Broken Heart. So if anybody likes listening to books, there's now a new version of and The Blessing of a Broken Heart there, on Audible. All right, Audible, uh, Blessing of a Broken Heart, that's the original book that we've been talking about from Sherry Mandel. This one is called Reaching for Comfort. Reaching for Comfort, it's on Amazon, all your usual 
online uh, major book locations. And again, we are highly recommending it. You will find it fascinating, one story after another. Uh, Kobe Mandel Foundation, to search it online. Everybody give generously, keep them going. They will have a camp this summer. And 20 years later, they're doing amazing work. And that's a big, big tribute to Sherry and Rabbi Seth Mandel uh, for the way that they have memorialized Kobe in that unique and incredible fashion, reaching thousands over the years. Uh, Sherry, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Mazal Tov on the book, uh, and thank you. Thank, thank, you. thank you for all the lessons we've learned from it already. Okay, it's great to talk to you. Have a good day. You as well. Appreciate that very much. Sherry Mandel, uh, Kobe's Yard Site was yesterday. She joined us today. The brand new book is Reaching for Comfort. Kobe's gone 20 years, but she has uh, developed an incredible strength and an amazing way to reach out both through the book and through so many other methods to the Jewish world with important lessons. And I, I again, I'm highly recommending this book. Get it. Get it. It's, a, uh, it. it's an easy read, but so meaningful and so deep. And boy, a lot of important lessons for those of us who like uh, performing the mitzvah, visiting the sick. This is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world the web at nachomsegal.com and the nachomsegal network and of course on the beloved nsn app that was my conversation with sherry mandel next up rabbi lenny matenki he is the um uh, co-president of rza religious Zionists of america is doing an amazing job and i had an opportunity to speak with him about the mizrahi movement on a recent edition of jm in the am here is Rabbi Lenny Matenki on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Thursday morning broadcast on this day 32 in the counting of the Omer, four weeks and four days. One day ahead of our big Lagba Omer celebration tomorrow morning, a five-hour live JM in the AM. No matter where you are in the world, you can watch it on Facebook Live, on Instagram Live, on NahumSiegel.com. Hear it on the NSN app. It'll be Avram Rosenblum and the Diasperados in a full concert performance. R.E.A. Kunstler and other great musicians are part of it as well. And we we hit the airwaves at 6 a.m. And we'll go to 11 o'clock. Logbomer's celebration. Oh, by the way, as I'm ready to introduce our next guest, and I'm very anxious to speak with our next guest, I have to thank our friends at Mizrahi RZA. Mizrahi, Religious Zionists of America, are the presenting sponsor. And we will have guests on tomorrow from Mizrahi RZA, not just today, but tomorrow as well. Uh, they are presenting sponsor of our big Lagba Omer celebration. Uh, in anticipation as well of eventually getting to Israel, please God, with Mizrahi. <laughs> as I mentioned to everybody a couple of times earlier in the week, all that is still up in the air. But uh, Mizrahi, e- even in the abstract fashion, even when we don't know if the trip's happening, they still are the leaders <laughs> in getting people to Israel from Chutz Laaretz, which is pretty amazing. And they were so impressed that they took on that role and did it so well so far. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but anyway, they are our presenting sponsor tomorrow and a big five-hour JM in the AM. And on the subject of RZA, Religious Zionists of America, Rabbi Lenny Matenki is with us live via telephone from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, absolute honor for us to have him on. Love speaking with him on the air and off the air. Uh, he, as, as it says here, he's a prolific modern Orthodox rabbi and Jewish leader in the United States. By the way, for those of you who think I'm busy or if you think you're busy, our schedules don't, uh, they, they pale in comparison to Rabbi Matenki. He's co-president of Religious Zionists of America. He's pulpit rabbi of Congregation Knesset Israel, Nusach Sfard of West Rogers Park in a wonderful Jewish neighborhood out in Chicago. He's dean of Ida Crown Jewish Academy, past president of the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, and he's with us live via telephone this morning. Rabbi Matenki, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to speak with you and your audience today. I, I appreciate that so much. I, I, I got to start on the global level. I, I I would assume you agree with me. I mean, you've been involved with RZA in this position as co-president for the last five years. I, I remember, and, and I have a little bit of history, and I, I, I do mean little because um, it, it's not extensive, but I grew up in a house that knew a lot about the Zionist movement. Um, and, um, you know, my, my father was one of the, uh, religious leaders in the United States, frankly, who questioned the necessity for an official Zionist movement once the state of Israel was, uh, established. And I said this to Daron Peretz, a rabbi Daron Peretz, the first time I met him in Israel and heard his presentation about how he's going to inject 
even more enthusiasm into the Mizrahi movement. And of course, based on the history, as you can imagine, I sat there with some skepticism, and then I watched what he's done over the last few years and what people like yourself and others at his side have done. And the movement has really gotten a tremendous injection of, uh, of enthusiasm and of purpose. Can you identify why the Mizrahi movement, as great as it's been, I don't want to put down the lay leaders and all those who've worked so hard over all these decades, they did a great job, but could you explain to us why it's had this amazing injection of enthusiasm over the last couple of years? Well, I think I can, but first I think, Nahum, that you do a disservice to the Siegel family, who are Chicagoans originally, (laughs) and their credentials and their commitment to Eretz Israel and the state of Israel. Your credentials are extraordinary, and so are your families and was your father's. But to go to the Mizrahi itself, I think part of what has led to the reemergence, the reinvigoration of the Mizrahi in America and around the world is a pent-up desire to identify with the state of Israel and with Eretz Yisrael in a meaningful way. Mm. For too many years, we were letting it just ride, taking it for granted. And with the reintroduction of new, exciting personalities at the leadership, both in Israel, Rabbi Daron Peretz, here in the United States, Rabbi Ari Rakoff, who's now our executive right. vice president, sure. These people have brought us to a brand new level and given an opportunity for us to do what we always wanted to do, defend, support, and love the land of Israel. It's pretty amazing, and, and some might have said that, you know, hey, anybody in America, for instance, who you know are real Zionists have probably moved already over the last couple of decades to Israel, and it's a, it's a, pool, a very small pool of people that have that burning desire that, or the pent-up desires you just described. And one thing I've discovered over the last few years is exactly the opposite. Both among the Orthodox and non-Orthodox communities here in the United States, there are so many people who are so identified with Israel and want to be more involved in this Zionist movement. And frankly, parents of all backgrounds doing an amazing job with their kids, again, no matter what their level is of observance, doing an amazing job with their kids, sending their kids as lone soldiers to Israel from backgrounds that would shock us, I mean, you, you, you dig a little bit and you see every corner of this country with people who desire to be more involved with Israel. I think you're 100% correct, but I also think that once again, uh, we have to be a little bit more careful, and that is that unfortunately in communities which don't identify as strongly with the Jewish community or identify more with a liberal American community, the support of the State of Israel in the next generation has dropped significantly, which makes our mission ever more important. Even among the Orthodox, we still have to explain to our children why it is so important. We grew up, there were existential threats to Israel. I remember the Six-Day War, not that I'm that old, I was a little (laughs) child, but I remember my teacher telling us where the Israelis had gotten. I remember collecting from Agen David Adom during the Yom Kippur War when we were so scared, and during the terrorist attacks. But if we think about the college students today, high school students today, that's in the history books. And often, their history teachers don't get that far. You know what's funny? We spoke to Rabbi Hart Levine, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you agree that he was a great hire by Mizrahi because of his expertise to reach the exact generation that you're referring to. He, he's pretty hopeful that they're really that that with some education and some of this spirit and you know exploring the uh, the uh, the uh, the burning desire that even that generation still has for Israel. There's really hope to develop uh, a quote unquote real Zionists in that generation. I mean, it sounds based on what you're saying that you'd agree with that, just to take some work, that's all. I agree with it wholeheartedly, and no pun intended about Rabbi Hart. <laughs> uh, he's an amazing person on board, and the team we have in New York working on the National Mizrahi Movement is exceptional, but I would actually refer you and all of your listeners back to this week this week's parasha, where we begin with the, with the two verbs, emor v'amarta, to tell and to tell, and the famous statement, which says that we have to, we have to remind the adults that they have to teach the children. We have, a, we have a requirement. And it used to be that the news broadcasts, the, the sense of urgency taught the children. 
we have our obligation now in doing it as adults. We can do it, and we will do it, and we are doing it. But it's something that we have to be very, very aggressive at. No question about it, Rabbi Lenny Matenki is with us. He's speaking to us from Chicago, where he's dean of the Ida Crown Jewish Academy and rabbi of Congregation Knesset Israel, uh, Nusach Sfarad of West Rogers. But by the way, they call it Kins or Kinds. How do they refer to that? No, they, they call it Kins. Kins. We've called it Kins, but since... Since the uh, 1960s or 70s, the people who came, it got to be too much of a mouthful. <laughs> I get that. He's co-president of the Religious Zionists of America, who are presenting sponsor of a big Lagbomer celebration tomorrow. Why has Chicago been such a hub, not only for modern orthodoxy, but, but for the Zionist movement? And I'm not referring to my father's generation and era. I mean today. Why does it seem like things are still going really well when it comes to having vibrant schools that are really uh, paying attention to what's happening in Israel and Zionism in general? Well, I think Chicago has always had an advantage, and that is it is both a small town and a major community. And so we've been able to create those relationships and maintain those relationships in many of the traditions as well. We've been able to cross boundaries. And so where in some communities, unfortunately, there's great divisions between right, left, center, of whatever you're going to look at, when it comes to the Jewish community, there are bridges that were built and generations of bridges that were built. So we have those advantages. So, I mean, I mean, not, not to put down other communities, but you might simply be in the right place to do the work that you want to do for the Zionist movement. Like it just... Oh, I've always, I've always felt I'm in the right place at the right time if mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be in Israel at this time. Right, understood. Um, and, of course, past president of the RCA, uh, you know, and, and I say it like that because you've, you've led rabbis. I mean, you, you've been the leader of a, of a group of rabbis who, you know, explore now, I guess, more via Zoom, but in a regular era, you know, explore very often in person important topics when it comes to the future of the Jewish people. I would love to see more pulpit rabbis in this country use the pulpit for national messages. I'm, I'm, I understand that, you know, half the sermons have to be for, you know, community purposes and divrei Torah. I'm not putting that down. But I would love to see on certain occasions rabbis really pay attention to the national message and give the message to their congregants that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. Is this something that you can communicate and have communicated to other rabbis, especially the Orthodox ones in this country? We have, we do, and I think, Nochum, I'm going to have to invite you to different shuls, apparently, for Shabbos. I'd love it! Because many rabbis do. Uh, One of the real problems which rabbis have nowadays, especially in the political environment of today, is... Taking, is taking a stand which is going to alienate part of the community and, and bring others part in. And so often rabbis will shy away from that. But I, the rabbis I know and the rabbis I work with in the RCA are rabbis who truly have a passion for Bedinat Yisrael, for Eretz Yisrael, and speak about it and live it right. in a real and meaningful fashion. Yeah, that's true. I can't, as I, as I, make a statement like this, I can't uh, ignore those who actually do pay careful attention to uh, to the topic. Or Lenny Matenki is with us, RZA Mizrahi. Well, the big question, I mean, first of all, Matenki, I-, I hope you agree with me that, you know, when transitions like the ones we've described here uh, in the Mizrahi movement take place, often it takes a long time for the Hamonam, for the general public to feel a change. I, I think one thing that's really to the benefit of, of both Mizrahi around the world and the U.S. is that this feeling is getting around very quickly, and I think that's a a, a big victory, frankly, for for Mizrahi that that people are already getting the feeling that this you know serious shift into overdrive is happening already. Well, that's true, and I think it's a testament to the good which is out there in terms of communication and media today, right. not just on radio, <laughs> but on the Internet. And also, by the way, we've used the print media because it's very important when we deal with things for Shabbat. Right. You know, the shul is still the major meeting ground of our community, and when people walk in and they see this magnificent um, booklet of Hamizrahi that comes out that on, for different holidays, different times, it also communicates it so beautifully. Let's not forget the Zionist elections of last year, right. where there was a major push, and you were in that, and right in the middle of all of those things, reporting on it and enjoying it. And, well. and, I, and I think people felt galvanized. I think people felt that they really were part of it, and then when they saw the results, they were thrilled, frankly, that they were part of a winning team, which is always the greatest feeling, obviously. Yeah, there, there is a movement. There is a movement. Mm-hmm. I give 
tremendous credit for my co-presidents, Ernie Agatstein, Dr. Ernest Agatstein on the West Coast, and Mark Nolunar on the East Coast. But everyone has really come together, and things are moving. We have a long way to go. But if I had asked people five years ago, so what's Mizrahi in America, they would have looked at me with a blank stare. Now, more likely than not, they'll be able to identify something we have done or something we're about to do. No question about it. And the, and the Hamizrahi magazine that you pointed out, one of the best uh, publicity pieces you can imagine. Anybody out there who hasn't yet seen it, go to their website. You literally download it uh, online. And obviously, once we're all back in shul, which I hope most people are already, you'll see it before every occasion, including coming up. I know I can imagine if they have one coming up for Yom Yerushalayim and uh, Shavuot. Rabbi Mantenki, uh, all of this background, all of this conversation that you and I have had obviously leads to the the big question, and that is uh, how you see RZA Mizrahi in the next 10, 20 years. What does success look like in the next couple of decades for this movement? Well, I won't go for a couple of decades, but I think in the near and not-too-distant future, I think where Mizrahi is going to be making a major impact is making sure that that next generation identifies with Israel not just as a vacation spot and not just as a place where we look forward to the rebuilding of the third Beit HaMikdash, but also to the place which is the Jewish homeland, the center of Jewish of the Jewish world, where it's core to their existence. And that'll be done through education and through programming, through Aliyah without question, and through regular connections with what is going on in the state of Israel. And it's our responsibility to find all of the means and all of the methods and use all of the media to make that occur. And you believe, it's obvious, that it can be done. Everything you just said, you believe certainly can be done, and that the base of support uh, for this movement can just grow and grow. I do with all of my heart, and that's why I and others, and so many others, have committed their lives to making sure that this message comes through, not just to people who identify as religious Zionists, but to all of our Jewish community, and also to the secular community, the non-Jewish community, that we have a passion and we have a mission, and most importantly, we have that dream, the dream not just of Yimot HaMashiach, which we look forward to every single day, but the dream of what will be until that point, of bringing that new Geula forward. No question about it. For those of us who are real believers in what the state of Israel means spiritually, it's a very, very important message, and all of us can have an important role going forward. Uh, Kent, thank you enough for joining me this morning. Uh, continued success. I am Ikevel. Ikevel. And it's been like this literally from that first meeting in Jerusalem with Rav Daron. Ikevel at the way the international and the American movement is going and the direction it's going in. And uh, whatever I could do to help, just call on me because this is a movement that's very, very important to me. Don't worry, you'll be getting, you have gotten <laughs> our calls and you will continue to get them. And I encourage everyone Rabbi, to join so- us. I apologize. Go ahead. No, join join us in this great mission. Rabbi Matenki, please send our very best to everybody in the Windy City. Are you married to that place? If if someone offered you a really nice position in New York, do we have a chance, or you're staying out there in the Midwest? You know, it's a great question. (laughs) Because there's there's certain... But I have too heavy of a Chicago accent. I don't know if the New Yorkers will all understand me. I think they'd go for you after a while, frankly. But all right, I guess that's for another conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And happy Lagba Omer. I hope you have a chance to tune in a couple of minutes tomorrow. Oh, for your show, everyone listens around the world. I appreciate that. Rabbi Lenny Matenki, everybody, he is amazing. I, I remember the first time I met him, I mean, it's possible over the years I met him even before then, but the first time I met him in earnest and had a conversation and enjoyed his presentation uh, was at one of the YU conferences, and he, just brilliant, brilliant. And yes, he really can be. I know it's hard to believe when someone has a bio, that includes the <laughs> the dean of the Ida Crown School and a pulpit rabbi of a real synagogue and co-president of RZA. It's hard to believe that he could do it all, but he does. And I thank him for joining us. Thursday morning broadcast, Lave Ba'omer. Today is day number 32 in the counting of the Omer. And we uh, give a special shout-out to Dr. Mark, who joined us earlier on this Lave Ba'omer. Remember... Dr. Mark is all for heart healthiness, and the word lave means uh, 
means heart. So that's why he joined us earlier. Anyway, we are one JM in the AM hour away from our Logboomer celebration. <laughs> one more hour in the books this morning, and then the next JM name you'll hear will be the incredible Logboomer celebration presented by RZA, Religious Zionists of America, with a big thank you to Raymond Tanky and all the lay leadership, and of course, Ari Rockoff. Um, and he'll be with us tomorrow. It is, a, and, and look, not everybody, I can't convey this to everybody. Not everybody grew up in the house that I did. But, and I, and I don't want to be harsh because there has been a lot of hard work in the Mizrahi movement over the last many decades. But the difference of the last few years is just unbelievable. The energy that started from Jerusalem appropriately enough, where else should it start from, and has spread around the world to every continent is really remarkable. And uh, I, 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 I encourage everybody to hop on, hop aboard the Mizrahi bandwagon. If you like a winning team, hop aboard this bandwagon. They're a winner. And this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network. And of course, any beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Rabbi Lenny Metenke. Next up, David Wallace. We know him as koshertravelers.com. He is the authority when it comes to vacationing in Dubai and many other places. David Wallace on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And happy Pesach Sheni. And now we get to wish happy Pesach Sheni to somebody who's in Israel. David Wallace is in Modi'in at the moment. As you know, based on uh, the shows you heard in December, he is often traveling everywhere. <laughs> but specifically over the last few months, he's had a lot to do uh, with what's happening in Dubai in the UAE. David Wallace is from Kosher Travelers. We always recommend it if you want to go to Dubai. I mean, if you want to go anywhere, but right now let's talk about the UAE. Uh, go to koshertravelers.com. Koshertravelers.com. They are the authorities at the moment on the best way to see the UAE with a tour and what to do, where to eat, where to go, uh, et cetera, et cetera. David Wallace, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Uh, it's wonderful to speak to you again, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem, doing well. And what's funny, in retrospect, and I think you'd agree with this, when we went to Dubai, which was just before Hanukkah, I think that we landed in New York, literally, and, and lit the first candle that night after we landed. Uh, it, it turns out that may have been the best week to be there, because since then, since December, it's sort of been on and off with restrictions and guidelines coming out of the UAE, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, are things a bit more stable now? Are things back to what I remember in December of 2020? Look, they are they are beginning to to resemble what we experienced. So the first thing is that uh, at least with Israel, there's no quarantine on either end, which which did come into play soon after our trip together in December, right. January, February. People were starting to experience the quarantine on on the, at least the Israeli end, um, but now that's been removed. So that's good. Uh, you need the you know the uh, the standard PCR negative uh, results upon entry, um, and and uh, I mean the, the only thing that you know the Israeli government is still cautious and wary of are these uh, variants, and that applies to many destinations, not just the UAE. But uh, you know if you've been vaccinated and you're staying away from crowds. Uh, generally, you know, we, we have not heard of any cases. All right, so you may have one right now. I don't know, but when is your next official journey, your next official tour for what I guess would be both Israelis and people around the world to Dubai? Sure. So I'll tell you how we, we, we formulated it. We are opening up the hotel next Sunday. That's, um, what date is that next Sunday? Excuse me. May the 2nd. May the 2nd. <laughs> uh, May, May the 2nd. May the 2nd, because that's uh, pretty much towards the end of the Ramadan. And we'll be open until the thirty until the 30th, 31st of May. Okay, so for, for basically for three weeks, four weeks, we're open in Dubai, but not on an official tour. In other words, we're right. operating a kosher hotel in Dubai. Come and stay and do your own trips. If you want to organize a side trip, you know, day trips, we can do that for you. But it's not a group tour. The group tours will be starting again after uh, and including Sukkot. So we're running a Sukkot program there for 10 days. And then in October, November, and December, each month we'll be running the seven-day tour. David Wallace is with us, koshertravelers.com. 
koshertravelers.com. So let me get this straight. When you say that this week, uh, or this Sunday more specifically, a kosher hotel or a hotel with kosher service is going to be open until the end of May, which hotel is that? It's the Conrad Hilton. So people can go online and and take a look at it if they want. Sure, absolutely. But if they want the kosher elements and, and, and all the food, they, they, they right. buy the room through us. Right. It includes three meals a day, and then they can go out. But I was just saying that the beauty of what, what's happening in October, Nachum, is the World Expo is opening up uh, for six months, which is supposed to be, you've heard of the, the World Expo? Yeah, of course. And, um, and, and, and it's happening it, in Dubai this year? Yes. It was postponed from last year, wow. and it's a you know this once in a lifetime celebration, it's welcoming ninety participating countries, over twenty five million visitors from across the globe. Uh, Israel is going to have a massive stand there, massive, and for six months they'll be you know celebrating culture, collaboration, and innovation. David Wallace and kosher dot com. They're doing a Sukkot tour at the five star. Conrad Hilton starting uh, September the 20th. They're doing tours October 11th. They'll be doing one November 15th. They'll be doing one December 13th. There's a lot going on. And obviously for Sukkis, they'll do the full thing with guest scholars and daily entertainment and plenty of tours. And obviously the meals are all taken care of. But those of you who want to go now, those of you who want to go to UAE now, uh, be aware that Kosher Travelers has a kosher hotel, this Conrad Hilton Hotel, between uh, basically now, but it's this Sunday, through the end of May. You go to koshertravelers.com for information. If you book your hotel room through them, you get the three meals a day, etc. And frankly, David, I know from my personal experience, that was really the only thing that, that I didn't plan very well for, right? At the time we were there in December, it wasn't the easiest thing in the world because there were so many people coming in from Israel and other places. Yeah. And obviously the eating, mm-hmm. the eating and dining options were limited. Uh, but you're guaranteeing yeah. that obviously anybody who books through you, they're not going to have to worry about meals, which is a very, very big headache off of people's minds. But in addition to that, i gotta, I got to give you an additional plug because if people do go with you in May, if they decide to go next week or sometime Memorial Day weekend or whatever the case may be, if they do go with you in May, uh, you have a, a wonderful staff of people that does the one-day tours. Uh, you, have people yeah. who, you have people who could direct people to the local synagogues, as you know. Yeah. There are major minyanim. I mean, we're talking about big crowds, so it's not with a with a lo- with with a large timetable, so people don't have to worry about missing minyan or anything like that. Uh, and you'll guide everybody exactly what to do fully. It, they may not be completely accompanied by a forty-person group, but they will be accompanied by whoever they want in terms of setting up their day. So you you not only have a hotel staff that's ready to serve the Jewish community worldwide, you have a full travel staff that's ready on the spot to take people around and make people feel very comfortable and also make people feel like they haven't wasted any time there. If you're only in Dubai for a few days, you want to use those days and fill them up as much as possible. Correct, correct. When, when, when people travel, you know, you want things taken care for you from nuts to bolts, and it's service-oriented and, and you know, we, we want to take away the stress of travel, and that's right. what we do. We make you, you walk away. You're and I'll just point out the reason we're, we're closing up at the end of May, in other words, we're only open for the month, is simply because the weather, right, the desert heat of 40 to 45 degrees Celsius is too unbearable for any Western tourist to be there. I mean, people do live there, and they somehow you know, manage living in, in buildings in air conditioned from office to, 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 to their homes, but... Uh, for tourists to, to move around, it's just becoming possible. So we, we close down from the end of May till September, and then we kick off again the fall and winter season. And not too early to place a reservation for Sukkot, right? It's not too early. You can do not it right now. I'll, you, tell you, I'll tell you one other thing, Nachum. We have synagogue missions joining us. Nice. For, for, for October, there's a shul in uh, Young Israel of North Beverly Hills joining us with a, a further three days in Jerusalem to be addressed by Ambassador Friedman and Bougie Herzog. That's a very exciting mission. People can be filled. I mean, it's a synagogue purpose designed for that particular shul, but, you know, other shuls are welcome to pick up on that. And we, we call it a, it's an Abraham Accords mission. Get, uh, get in and, and discover what Israel and the UAE have put together up close. And you, know, you bring in the speakers and uh, think tank specialists and, and people who are involved in the diplomatic side of things and give people a, a real insight. 
into what this Abraham Accord is all about. You know, David, you like to move around. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, as much as I endorse that people should be in Israel as long as possible, I think you spent a little too much time in Modian over the last 15 months. I think you'd agree with that. And I remember in December... Yeah. I remember in December you were itching to just get back everything. You know, it's on your website, all different countries, all different places. Correct. You were Correct. so anxious to get them all going, and obviously you had to pause again because of what what happened. Are you, are you getting the feeling like maybe maybe oh. maybe starting with Sukkot, all those destinations around the world that you guys deal with will finally start to attract some people? I would say it's going to be incremental, step by step. I don't see 2021 uh going back completely to what it was pre-covid it's going to take another i think you know it, as each destination opens up you know we will be dealing with that as, and and loading them up on our side and allowing people creating creating those uh vacation experiences but but until until covid is solidly behind us you know uh only at that point will we be able to return to to what it was but i'll give you another a, a nice example we were able to run a Pesach program here in Israel for the Anglos living in Israel. Nice. We had 350, 350 people, and the most beautiful thing, incredible, that we had, thank God, Siyata Dishmaya. We had over 120 kids under the age of 16 who weren't vaccinated, but had to show up at the hotel with a negative PCR, all right? And on that basis, they were allowed in. Right. We did not have a thing, and, and families were concerned that, you know, if, if my kids get the positive right. 24 hours before and we've paid for the rooms, what, we had a, a fully loaded no, a cancellation policy that you could cancel if it was related to COVID, even up to hours before your arrival. Well, the result was that we didn't have a single kid tested positive, not a single cancellation from the families. That is so such... So it's exciting. It's... It's amazing how it's been. How things have developed. Now, I was going to say that's such great news. A friend of mine who went on a program in the United States said for him, Pesach didn't end until two weeks after Pesach, meaning oh. <laughs> they wanted to make sure that you know everybody after two weeks was, and nobody, thank God, had anything. So yes, we are going in yeah. a very positive direction. Also, I'm sure yeah. you know because Israelis love to travel. I'm sure you know that the hotels in general. Uh, around the country are, are filling up with people who just want to get away for a night or two, including the holiday of Shavuot, which I'm told is sold out all over Yerushalayim, which is good to know. And and yeah. uh, and in general, I, I know it's incremental, as you just said, and look, you're the expert, I'm not, but there's so many people with a pent-up desire to travel. Oh, yeah. I, I think at <laughs> some point in 21 or 22, you're going to feel that everybody's contacting you to just get somewhere to make up for, yeah. for for this very down, uh, you know, I don't want to say depressing, but a very down yeah. um, uh, feeling that everyone's had over the last 15 months. Yeah, no question about it. We're starting to see it now. There's no question about it. People inquiring about safaris in Africa. Right. Um, Europe is off limits. We're, 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 there's not much happening in Europe. Uh, that that will definitely take a good, you know, the good good part of 2021 uh but the beautiful thing is for us is that you know and the lovers of israel is that you know please god tourists can start coming back to israel now the point you made about the hotels of being full there's there's one reason especially for shavuot for instance we also have a we have a shavuot program but that's because there's about 30 to 35 percent of the hotels have not yet opened their doors right so all the demand is spreading across the balance of hotels that are open and of course you know the prices are almost pre-COVID prices. It's crazy. And people are prepared. Listen, they've sat home. People have not spent, you know, disposable right. income right. on a vacation, and they've, they've saved up for that. Yeah, and also, so, and like also, you say, yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear it that the stats, you know, force everybody into certain hotels, but the, and, the, yeah. and the bottom line is that that staff also has got to get paid, and people just got to you know get back yeah. to it. You know, there are people who go to restaurants now and leave hefty tips because they know what the people what the workers right. have gone through over the last few months. By the way, do you hear anything about um, you? You mentioned Europe, and everything's closed down. We had the most amazing experience in Rome with all those incredible kosher restaurants. Are they all closed? Like, has everyone just been closed for business for a year and a half? Like, what's happening there? You have any idea? In in the ghetto, yeah. yeah, I believe so. I believe so. I mean, I, there's probably there's probably a, probably a few of them are open for the local community. There's a there's ten thousand Jews living in Rome. You know, there's probably right. a pizza shop open. The best pizza, the best pizza shop in in Italy, I think, is there in the in that's the ghetto. That's right. That's right. Uh, it is. Um, so yeah, but 
look, a big chunk of their business relies on international tourism. But will they, I mean, can, well, I guess, I guess you have the same answer we have. We have no idea if these places are going to be able to rebound, yeah. but we certainly pray for them. All right, everybody out there, Dubai now, month of May. As you heard, no quarantine and all that. David Wallace will be more than happy to speak to you. Go to koshertravelers.com. And obviously, Sukkot in October, November, December, all those trips are open. Go to koshertravelers.com. You can check it out. And as destinations open up, David will be posting on the website uh, what he normally has, which is a voluminous list of destinations that they go to, including the safaris, uh, Morocco, Europe when it opens up, etc., etc., etc. It's going to take some time, but boy... We're going to be encouraging everybody to uh, do what they can to uh, to explore and to get out there and live life again. Uh, David Wallace, Tadar. Nahum, yeah. Thank you. Do you remember where, where is our next meeting point, Nachum? Remember where we said we're well, meeting next? Didn't we speak about Morocco? Exactly. Yeah, we spoke about Morocco. We're going to be meeting yeah. up in Morocco. We're going to do a mission there because, again, it was part of the Abraham Accord. So I don't know. With, with, with your schedule and my schedule, who knows? We'll probably end up seeing, <laughs> seeing each other in Jerusalem. Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. we got to get Morocco on that schedule at some point. Exactly. Wouldn't mind broadcasting Wonderful. from there. Hey, happy Pesach Shani to you, David. <laughs> you too. It's great to catch up. And we should hear good news all around. Amen. Koshertravelers.com. David Wallace. Koshertravelers.com. If you want to go to Dubai, check it out. It's an amazing trip. And I can tell you one thing. You tell them what you want. Tour guide. I need the exact instructions of how to go to shul or to be escorted to shul. Or I need, you know, I, want, I, I, I appreciate the fact that you're giving us three meals, but I'd like to go to somewhere different one night. Whatever it is, they take care of it. Real detail-oriented, which is the greatest feeling when you're traveling in an unfamiliar place. Monday morning broadcast, more coming up here at JM in the AM as we continue. That was my conversation with David Wallace of koshertravelers.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up. Keep it right here at the Nahum Single Network.